0: Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast, where you'll hear right from the source how people like you have been able to buy and build their businesses across different industries all over the country. Dan Claps is the co-founder of Career Transition Leads, Nurture Assist, and Find a Business Online. Christian Dadalak is a franchise consultant with Find a Business Online, and he heads up business development for Career Transition Leads and Nurture Assist. He also runs an independent franchise consulting business, The Franchise Guys. Together, they formed relationships with hundreds of successful business owners who are excited to share their stories with you. Now, here are your hosts, Dan and Christian. All right. Well, what's going on, Christian? How are you? Good, man. Just uh, another great Monday here. Excited to be back on here with the uh, Franchise Founders Podcast with you, man.
1: Yeah. Morning for you, right? Since you're on the West Coast, how's your morning been so far?
0: It's good. It's been productive. had my coffee, had my BCAAs, had a little uh, egg sandwich, did some reading. Practice uh, Duolingo for a little bit. So I'm learning Spanish or trying to anyway. So it's been good. I think it's been a pretty productive morning so far. How about you? Nice. Yeah, same thing. I'm, I'm usually
1: up early in the morning. So did like uh, a run in the, you know, wake up, do a little run and then showered and got got to the computer, you know, where I basically
0: live. <laughs> Seems like at least Monday through Friday. Heard that, man. I wanted to hit my run today, but I took some melatonin last night. Too much, actually, and it just floored me. I was so tired and exhausted and groggy this morning. So note to self, don't take five milligrams of melatonin. (laughs) I don't know how many grams are in a regular pill,
1: but I know that I either can take that and it's awesome. I wake up like four in the morning, like ready to go, or I have that happen where I just can't wake up and it seems
0: like it's one or the other with melatonin. It just depends, I think, how much you're taking dosage. But yeah, today was one of those days where it was tougher. So now I get to run when it's hotter in the evening. So that's the punishment. Nice.
1: Well, today we're talking FDD, basics of the FDD and what to look for. And, you know, an overall, I guess, uh, education crash
0: course on the franchise disclosure document. Do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, the FDD, that stands for a franchise disclosure document. And I'll start off by saying that it is probably one of the unsexiest documents ever because it is a legal document. So it's not super exciting. It's hundreds of pages, lots of, of wording. And even though the Federal Trade Commission says that it has to be written in plain English, plain English in lawyer speak is still lawyer speak to some extent. You can read it and understand it to some degree, but it is still a legal document. So as we start this, I think it's good to preface it by saying, Dan and I, we're not franchise attorneys, we're not attorneys at all, but having looked at tons of these, Dan and I know some of the key things to look for. So we're going to keep it pretty high level on this. We're not going to get super nitty gritty. We're not going to be analyzing any particular franchise's FDD, but we'll tell you some of the basic mechanics of an FDD, what it is, and guide you through some of the key items. So I think that's what we'll do here today.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to start, like, what is the purpose of an FDD, a franchise disclosure document? And what I think is so great about it is that it's really there to protect the end user, the franchisee, the potential franchisee who's investing, you know, a good amount of their life savings into a new business under a certain uh, expectation of what that business can produce for them, provide to them, what's going to, you know, what their role in that business is. And this, Document, typically a couple hundred hundred pages, really outlines everything that someone needs to know. So by the time you make the investment and you sign that franchise disclosure document, you've really got a full picture, but audited financial picture as well, so that you're protected and you're making an
0: investment with the most information. Couldn't agree more. That's exactly what it's for. The reason they call it a franchise disclosure document is because it's meant to disclose information about the franchise so that people that are prospective franchise buyers, you can go into the process, go into exploring these opportunities with your eyes wide open and not be blindsided by information and claims, frankly, that may or may not be rooted and grounded in reality, which is ultimately what you want. You need to have the information at your hand to decide, hey, is this an opportunity that's worth exploring, that's worth pursuing, or is this something where, based on the information I have at hand, is maybe something that I want to pass on. So, that's really what the franchise disclosure document is meant to do. One analogy that I like, there's a couple that I like, but one of them is thinking about a franchise disclosure document almost like a menu at a restaurant. So you'll have, for example, the appetizer section, right? You'll have soups and salads, you'll have the entrees, you'll have beverages, and then at the end, you'll have dessert. I think the item 19 section is really the dessert. That's where it talks about financial performance representations. And we'll talk about that in a second. But It's like a menu. So there's different sections. They talk about different things. It starts off pretty general in terms of what the franchise is, what it does. And then it'll talk about the leadership team, fees, franchisees' obligations, franchisor's obligations, restrictions on products that can be used, trademarks, use of celebrity images, or whatever it is, all types of different things, what the initial investment is. So it goes through all of these different things. And really what the FDD does in a pretty boring way, but in a very important way, is it tells the story of the franchise. So again, how did the franchise get started? Who started the franchise? Why did they start it? What is their business experience? What business do they have starting this business and getting into this industry? And that way you have the background, you know what the initial startup costs are going to look like. If they make an earnings claim, what's that? And what kind of money can you potentially make or at least revenues? So lots of different information there. So it's a pretty bulky document, but it is a very, very important document with a ton of information, and it's there for a good reason.
1: Right. It really holds the franchisor accountable to the claims it's making as far as the investment, the returns, or the item 19 financial performance. It gives even access, and not always just because there's negative in an FDD, right? doesn't mean that that's a bad franchise, or it's not about that a franchise system should have nothing ever negative in it because that's just not realistic in business. But it gives a clear picture to what has happened and tells a story of that brand as it's become bigger and bigger as an organization. I always like to think about how if you're a member on the executive team, if you're an officer in, in that franchise system, you have to disclose any bankruptcies if you've been a part of or if you've been a director of a company that had to claim bankruptcy lawsuits, et cetera. And so you get to get a full, clear picture of the executive team of that franchise system. Now, again, doesn't mean that there isn't something there that someone may have had. Maybe they were you know, not guilty of something, but they were involved in a lawsuit. That's okay, but it's in the document and it's able for you to digest that information and ask questions about it. I know for me as a consultant, I had clients, they were looking at a franchise brand. Perhaps there was some type of litigation that was within the franchise disclosure document. And instead of jumping away and and saying, well, this isn't the brand for me, that client was very invested into the brand. They wanted to move forward. But they had the opportunity to have a clarifying conversation with one of the executive members, learn what happened, understand, ask the question, how are you going to improve from what you learned from that years prior? It just gives such clarity to every detail of the business and the members of the business.
0: Exactly. At the end of the day, it's all meant to put the potential franchise buyer in the decision-maker seat. Like we're not here to tell someone and the franchise disclosure document isn't there to tell someone whether or not the fact that maybe one of the founders of this business had a bankruptcy and that is disclosed. We're not here to pass judgment on whether it's right or wrong or the circumstances of it. It's just meant to disclose. And ultimately it's in the franchise buyer's court to decide, okay, is that a deal breaker for me? Or if I learn a little bit more about the circumstances of what happened, does that make sense? Can I stomach that? and ultimately move forward with this brand. So it's just meant to disclose. So it's not meant to say good or bad. Item three in the FDD, like Dan, you just touched on, talks about any litigation or pending litigation. And that's not even just where the franchisor is getting sued by a franchisee, for example, but that could also be if they've sued a franchisee. And just because there's litigation doesn't necessarily mean that the franchisor was at fault, or even that the franchisee was at fault. You just don't know, especially if it's pending but you do want to make sure that you pay attention to that so that you can go in with eyes wide open and see okay is there a pattern i think the ftd and when you're talking to franchisees that's a separate discussion with validation but really what you should be looking for are patterns if you see a bunch of lawsuits in an ftd in item 3 and it's the same kind of complaint the same kind of lawsuit maybe that's something that should be taken into consideration because you know if it's a one off thing things can happen there could be disagreements obviously But if there's a pattern of some kind, then it's really a good idea to recognize that pattern. And maybe that's where you might want to be a little bit careful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It gives the clarity to litigation and information in that likeness. And then, you know, the fact that we can also look at basically every function of the business broken down with clarity, right? So you've got the item seven, which is the investment into the business. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's easy to tell someone a business is going to cost X number of dollars as an investment And it's going to range from this amount to this amount. But what I like about item seven is the fact that it breaks it down basically line by line for all of the different expenses that someone is going to incur. Let's talk about
0: that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so fun too, being in the heat right here because all the flies decided to come in today. So anyone that's watching the YouTube video, I have flies buzzing past my camera. So that's a little frustrating. I didn't know if
1: you had like, you know, maybe leftover food under
0: your bed or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe I forgot about it. But that's what you're seeing if you're watching the video, anyone. But anyway, so back to the item seven. So like you mentioned, Dan, everything is itemized. So it'll talk about what the initial franchise fee is. So here's the total investment range, total startup cost to get one territory one location open. And so it'll talk about things like the initial franchise fee. If there's a physical space that's required or needed, it'll talk about the rent, lease, security deposit necessary, utilities, computer systems, insurance, signage, office expenses, inventory, licenses and permits, dues and subscriptions, any technology fees, professional fees. So that could be lawyers, accountants, any travel for training, um, and typically, this does include working capital for usually around three months, sometimes more. And it's always a good idea to have more working capital than they typically recommend in the FTD. But just understand that most franchise disclosure documents, I think almost all of them, will have working capital already built into that initial investment. So there is a component of that. So it'll usually express these different line items as a range. So here's the lower end of the range, and then here's the higher end of the range. So here's the lowest we believe it could potentially cost, and here's the higher range. And they'll do that for each of the different items on that list. And then ultimately, you'll get to that bottom line number, the total investment, adding all of those different items up. And you'll get the lower range of that initial investment all in. And then you'll get the higher end of that initial investment all in. And what's important to consider, obviously, is especially if there's a brick and mortar component, if you're starting a business in California, for example, where I live, that will likely be towards the upper end of that initial investment versus if you got started in Idaho, right? Or Montana or something like that, where the cost of living is lower, labor is lower. So those are all things to take into consideration as well. But I think it's a good idea to assume, don't assume obviously going into it that it's going to be on the lower end of the investment level. I think you want to come in assuming that things are going to be more expensive and cost more than maybe you had initially thought. So I think it's good to come in with the expectation that it might be towards the higher end of that range, even if you're in one of those markets that doesn't cost quite as much.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, they ask, you know, why is there a range? I don't understand how there could be this range of, you know, even sometimes, you know, six-figure range of low investment to high, you know, higher range. And what I always have told clients is, you know, right now you're in the research phase. You've got your research hat and you're studying brands and you're in the exploring phase. And then you're going to sign a franchise agreement. And you're going to switch from that to the training phase. You're going to train, you're going to learn, you're going to get educated. And then the next hat you're going to put on, if you're doing a build out, depends on the business, but if you're doing a build-out, is the build-out phase. You're like the general contractor. You put that hat on following the franchise system, but you're going to try to get the cheapest build-out with the highest quality. And people have different schools of thought on how they do that. For me, if I was going to build out something and I'm putting money into it, I'm probably going to go the better end than try to be as cheap as possible. Because to me the investment for the long term would be worth it. Now, there's other people that want to squeeze every dollar and have the lowest investment they possibly can to get the fastest, you know, return on their investment. There's no wrong way of doing it. But I think that those two decisions of how you're going to invest into the build that are going to really drive that range. And also how good of a GC hat you can play, right? You know, you have to be able to negotiate, know where you can push. Now, there's companies out there like, example, Repum Group, who brings in their own construction arm that they help their brands with, where they're going to guide you even more. And there's plenty of brands that do that. But really, it comes down to how good of a steward of your resources you're going to be during that build out. And you're concerned
0: about how much better you want the build out to be in your market. Yeah, absolutely. Great points for sure. So there's different sections that we'll talk about franchisees obligations, we won't go through all of it, because there's a lot of information there. But that could be basic things like, you know, what are the expectations for pre-opening, for leases, site selection, different things like that. There's a section that will talk about training, so what the franchisor will provide in the way of training. So that's critical, obviously, especially if you're coming into a franchise that's in an industry that you don't necessarily have a background in, that's perfectly fine. That's normal. And most franchisors, they don't want people with experience because then you're going to come in, in many cases, with bad habits, or you're going to be a know-it-all. And you're not going to follow their system and their way of doing things. So they're okay with that. But you want to make sure that you're engaging with a franchisor that really does have the training in place to get you up in a very, very short period of time to where you can have a conversation with an industry expert and hold your own and sound like an expert yourself. And most franchises are pretty good at doing that. But not every franchise is created equal. So when you're comparing different franchises, get a sense of what the training is going to look like and compare the different options? Where are you getting the most bang for your buck? What are they teaching you? Are they sending someone out to your local market once you're actually open to help you out maybe for the first seven days of operation? How long are you at their corporate headquarters training and getting hands-on experience? What kind of virtual training options do they have? What kind of ongoing training options do they have available? Maybe they have some sort of online vault that you can access to a library of sorts where you can access different training videos on a variety of different subjects related to your business do they have training for your employees? So there's lots of different training programs that they can have. So it's important to take a look at that. And oftentimes that's an item 11. So franchisors, assistance, advertising, computer systems, and training. So that's a great place to look for that. That's obviously very, very critical.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's touch on our favorite item. Let's do it. Financial performance, item 19. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and obviously there's some extenuating circumstances where perhaps it's not possible to have an item 19. But in my opinion, I think the amount of brands that have an it item 19 is growing dramatically year over year. I think it's ridiculous and pretty crazy to not have an item 19. If you're a franchise or listening to this, I'm sorry if I'm sounding harsh, but I just think that if we're presenting a business opportunity for someone, you know, they want to invest into a future vision and the culture and the brand and all the amazing things that you've built at the end of the day they're investing their money to make a return they're investing their money to provide themselves a living for their families and you know when i've always worked with clients i've always joked around that i'll help you look at businesses that you can be happy with and enjoy a great lifestyle but i like to help people find businesses that they can live off of you know and you know maybe living in the northeast here where you are in california we have to make money there's just no way around it if you want to live on in this area and live a comfortable life and so to me Obviously, you want to build a business that helps, and and you have purpose, and you're excited. But the return is important too. And so, the item 19 is really—it's like buying a car without an odometer reading, right? Or you know, having any idea of the investment and what it can produce. And I love the item 19 because it's audited, and those financials are you know held to a standard. So a lot of times when you're talking to a brand, if you're a buyer. I know if I was a new franchise buyer, I'd ask, well, what am I going to get as a return on investment? What's the profit? What's the gross sales? And you'll find that brands, they're not so forthcoming. And that's because there's franchise regulation that does not allow them to just make an arbitrary earnings claim. They have to only articulate what's within the item 19, which is this financial representation. How would you explain the item 19, Christian?
0: Yeah. Like I said earlier, if we imagine, again, the FTD is like a menu, then the item 19 is the dessert because everyone wants to know. And that's one of the number one questions that we'll get as consultants is, hey, this seems like a really cool brand, seems like a nice industry. But bottom line, what I want to know is, how much money can I make? And as you touched on, it's important to let people know up front that the franchise industry is regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. What that means is, And this is a good thing. It means we can't just say whatever we want and franchises can't just say whatever we want just so they can sell more franchises. They need to disclose the actual information about the brand. So it needs to be rooted in reality. So the item 19 is, it gives you a glimpse into potentially how much money you can make and different franchises will disclose different types of information. So for example, you might have a franchise that simply discloses What the average gross revenue is, the average top line sales revenue for their franchisees. And so maybe it's, you know, a million dollars per year is the average top line revenue. Maybe it's 500,000, whatever it is. Maybe that's all they disclose. And maybe they don't disclose a net profit number. They're not disclosing EBITDA or anything like that. And that's what they disclose. You might have another franchisor that will structure the revenue into tiers. So they might say, for example, here is the average revenue for the top third of our franchisees. Here's the average revenue for the middle third of our franchisees. Here's the average revenue for the bottom third of our franchisees. In many cases, they'll disclose what the median revenue is for people in those different tiers as well. Sometimes we'll do it in quartiles. You know, So there's so many different ways to structure it. Other franchisors will disclose net profits. So maybe they'll show a and l Some franchises that I know will disclose a full P&L for all of their franchisees they're more of an emerging brand, so they can do that. But still, so it's very, very transparent. So you can see exactly where the money's being spent, what the expenses look like, what the revenue is, and ultimately how much of that is going to the bottom line before taxes, before debt service, amortization, et cetera. But it really is a good glimpse into earning potential. But I will say this as a caveat, it's just a glimpse. So you do have to take everything with a grain of salt. Anyone that's that's studied statistics at all knows that you can you can and not the franchises are trying to do this and they're not trying to be misleading because this is actual data from their franchisees they can't just make this up but you can kind of mislead with numbers even if you don't mean to so it doesn't necessarily give you the full picture so take it with a grain of salt and make sure that when you talk to the franchisees you're asking them questions related to that item 19 and how accurate it is what their experience was you know year one year two how quickly did The business ramp up? How long did it take you to break even? Those sorts of questions are important to follow up. But the item 19 is a good starting point to give you a sense of what that financial earning capability is. And one other thing I'll mention as well is sometimes franchisors, and this will all be stipulated in the item 19, but they might say, for example, we're only factoring into this item 19 franchisees that have been up and running and in operation for 12 months. That way you can actually show a full calendar year of earnings. And maybe they don't disclose for people that have, they just started, obviously. They've been up and running for three to six months. They're in their initial ramp up phase, right? They're getting things down. They're going through that initial learning curve. And maybe they'll leave out franchisees. Some opportunities might allow you to be kind of more of a part-time owner. And that doesn't really give a full healthy glimpse of what it would look like to be a full-time owner. So they might leave those people out of their earnings claim as well which is fine. And they'll disclose that in the item 19. They'll tell you exactly how many franchisees were in the group that they're putting forward, who was left out, why were they left out. And so they'll disclose all that. So again, that's why I say, take it with a grain of salt still, but it should give you a good idea of at least what some of the potential is as far as earnings are concerned. Yeah, very well put it's in there, but there's still ways
1: to, unfortunately, to mislead. And that's the reason you want to, you know, work with franchise consultants and franchise attorneys and accountants and, you know, and really put your effort into your due diligence as you look at the Item 19 and the FDD overall. But, you know, that's a great point. You got to be Trust but verify, right? And be cautious as you pursue the the potential investment. Because the truth is, there are unfortunately brands out there that just want to sell franchises and they don't really think much about the consequences. It's unfortunate, but it's just like anything. There's bad actors in any industry, in any space. What I want to touch on about the FDD as you go through it is two things. Number one, I think it's ridiculously crazy. You're out of your mind if you do this one thing, which is you sign that franchise agreement without a franchise attorney. Number one, if you're crazy enough to sign an agreement of that magnitude, a life-saving investment, right, for a 10-year contract that is very hard to get out of, you're crazy. And then taking it a step further, I think that you should enlist the services of a quality franchise attorney, not your sister's husband's an attorney who does real estate, not your estate planning friend that went to you at the college, you estate planning law. No you need to go to a specialized person just like you go to a surgeon surgeon's pretty broad right you don't go to a surgeon to get brain surgery you go to a brain surgeon or heart surgeon or you know whatever the specific case is when it comes to franchise law these franchise attorneys they know specifically what to look out for what you know you can push on too now, that's one of the things that people don't realize to me i hire experts not because i need the expertise in business and i do need that as well but I hire an expert, especially in law, because they are an expert in law, what can be acceptable, what is not. And more importantly, in my experience, through anything I've done in business, they tell me where I can push and where I can't. They tell me where I'm being reasonable and unreasonable because they've seen hundreds or a thousand, not thousands of deals in you know similar ways. And so I just reflect on a story really quick. I had a client that, he enlisted a non-franchise attorney. He was looking at a really great concept, looking at multiple locations. And his attorney was pushing on all kinds of points that the brand would not budge on. Quite frankly, brands really don't negotiate franchise agreements too much. Uh, I'm getting off the topic of disclosure documents, but on agreements, they don't necessarily negotiate. And the reason why is if you're going to sign hundreds of franchise agreements all across the country. They can't all be chopped up and, changed here and there because it's not fair as a consistent product as a franchisor. And any franchise that's wheeling and dealing and making all these crazy deals, I would run away. But in this client, they kept pushing on all these points. We got all the way to the end. It was almost like the deal was going to fall apart. And I had to say to the client, look, I know that you're negotiating, but they actually don't want to move forward right now. They're afraid of you as a potential franchisee. And he came back and said, all right, forget about all those things I was asking for. Let's just negotiate the territory size to be bigger. And unfortunately, I really, it was the truth. This brand didn't either want to hear I'm signing or moving on because it felt like if we're about to get married, how did we just fight for three months or whatever crazy amount of time it was. And I remember thinking about how if we had just started with territory, which is usually more negotiable than other areas, he could have gotten that accomplished and closed on the deal and moved forward. But Instead, he ended up moving forward, but didn't get any of these things that he
0: tried to get, nor the thing he really wanted in the first place. It's funny. I've had the exact same thing happen with a client where he went with a franchise attorney that one of the franchisees that was already in the system had recommended. And the franchisor said, oh gosh, I remember dealing with this attorney before. He asked for the whole world. I mean, you might be able to negotiate some small things, some minor items, but if you're trying to ask for more than 10, changes to the agreement, even more than a handful, the franchisor in many cases is just going to throw their hands up and say, I don't know if this is the right fit, because there's a reason that it's standardized. Imagine if you were a franchisee, a territory over, or even across the country, it doesn't matter. And you learn that Joe Schmo, who just entered the system, got all kinds of royalty relief, where he didn't have to pay the same royalty or he paid a massively discounted franchise fee, got a massive territory, is getting other discounts or There were certain terms in the agreement that got waived for John, but not for everybody else. That doesn't bode well for the entire system and for the trust of the franchisor with their franchisees. Bottom line, the franchise agreement, it's in place to protect the franchisees. It may not seem like that because when you look at the FDD, you look at the agreement, it's going to be one-sided. But that's very normal in the industry. Because again, if I have territory A and then five miles down the road, 10 miles down the road, There's Territory B, this new franchisee, and he's not following the system. And he's, I go back to the movie, The Founder. I think when all the different franchisees initially, they started selling items that weren't on the menu, that weren't approved, and Ray Kroc got all pissed off. Well, that's because it affects the other franchisees. It hurts them. And brand consistency isn't there. If there's trash everywhere, it's not being taken care of. It reflects poorly on the other franchisees, and that could affect them and their sales and their earnings. And that's not fair to them. So if you're a good franchisee and you're following the system, you like a franchisor that is strict, you know, to an extent within reason with their franchise agreement. And so it's like that for a reason. But to go back to your point, Dan, using a franchise attorney is the only way to go because they understand what you can negotiate, what you can't negotiate, what's normal, what's not, what's a red flag, what's not. And they're going to be able to help you on that. And in a future episode, we'll get a franchise attorney on so we can really have this discussion at length But yeah, you should absolutely consult a franchise attorney that specifically looks at FDDs, they've looked at franchise agreements, they know what to look for. Again, they know what's normal, they know what's not, and they'll be able to help guide you there. We'll change the title of this to the disclosure document and the
1: franchise agreement, the FA. But, you know, just to wrap up this topic, it's something I feel very passionate about because that client said, you know, Dan, I spent $2,500 and I didn't change anything in the agreement. Why did you have me call an attorney and do that? And I would always say, I don't care if you spend $2,500, you don't change one thing, but you know what you signed from a legal, not you read it. No, your franchise attorney explained everything you're signing so that if you ever have an issue, you go back and you know what you signed and you already know, you know, you're not going to go through this transaction. If you ever go to sell the business or a transaction of, you know, of any sort." where there's any surprises. And business lesson, I've already done that. I've already done the sign an agreement, quick, send it off. There's nothing more expensive than a cheap attorney. Okay. It's the most expensive mistake you can make to not hire a strong attorney for anything legally. I'm crazy now. I don't sign anything. Every single document, every single word, and every single word I send down in a contract it took me a long time to get my teeth kicked in until I learned you know, how important that was. But don't go signing anything without really, really understanding it. Because the truth is, as much as those agreements you sign with a franchise company are there or with anyone, are there in case war breaks out and you're pulling them out of your filing cabinets, hopefully you never have to. But if you do, everything, that's all that's going to matter. Not, not what you did or what they did or what you said or what they said. All that will matter is what is clearly written in the
0: law and the agreement. And so make sure you take your time there. Absolutely. Yeah. If for nothing else, the point of having a franchise attorney, is so you're going into the agreement, you're going into this new relationship, this marriage to some extent with your eyes wide open, you know what you're getting yourself into, you know what your obligations are, you know what the franchisor's obligations are, and that way the expectations are set. You know what's expected of you, you know what you can expect of them, and that limits the surprises. So you're going in with eyes wide open. The one thing I will say that, that you can sign without an attorney because this isn't, signing the actual agreement or anything, but it's the FDD receipt. All that that means is, it's just simply an acknowledgement that you received the FDD from the franchisor, because they legally have to disclose it to you. So it's just saying, hey, I received the FDD, not that I'm agreeing, not that I'm signing, that I'm starting this franchise, not that I'm agreeing that everything inside of it makes sense to me, anything like that. It's only signing that you received the document. So that's the only signature, I guess, that you shouldn't be worried about consulting an attorney for it. That's just simply a receipt. Everything else, when you before you sign a franchise agreement, before you even think about signing a franchise agreement, yeah. talk to a franchise attorney. Awesome. Well, thanks, Christian. Great episode. Awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for tuning into the Franchise Founders Podcast. Share, subscribe, leave us a review. We appreciate it all.